Hello and welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and we're going to be talking about an issue that's near and dear to the hearts of the people of Maine and the entire country, outdoor recreation, particularly parks and national parks. And my first guest is someone I'm just delighted to introduce to Maine people, uh, my colleague on the uh, subcommittee on national parks and energy and natural resources committee, Steve Dane, Senator from Montana. Uh, technically we're called, I'm, I'm the chair and he's the ranking member, but as far as I'm concerned, he's the vice chair or co-chair or whatever. We're partners in this enterprise. Steve, it's great to have you with us. Angus, I'm really glad to be with you. Listen, let's start with a little bragging, Steve, because I don't think uh, the people at home know that every now and then we're able to work together and get things done. And you and I worked together a couple of years ago on the Great American Outdoors Act, which I think is one of the great achievements in conservation for decades. Well, Angus, you know, some have said that was the greatest conservation achievement in, in 50 years. And I, I think that's a, a reasonable a reasonable statement. Uh, as, as you know, you, you, you love the national parks. I love your stories of the time you spent driving all over our country, seeing our national parks. Uh, I grew up in the shadows of Yellowstone National Park there in Montana. It's, it's, I, my earliest memories were going to our national parks as well. And, you know, some things we do here, Angus, really matter for future generations. I think this is one of them to preserve this amazing gift we have of our national parks for, for kids and grandkids. And there were there are two pieces to the Great American Outdoors Act. One was uh, a fund to uh, try to do some catch up on deferred maintenance at the national parks. The, the parks had been allowed to sort of uh, deteriorate over the years and there was a $12 billion deferred maintenance uh, uh, problem built up so that was the first piece of the of the Great American Outdoors Act. The second piece was uh, making permanent the funding of the what's called the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And these monies don't come directly from taxpayers. They're they're from leases, mineral leases on federal land. So there's a kind of symmetry where federal land is used for uh, energy, for example, energy extraction, and the revenues from that now go to the parks and to uh, to public land and recreation across the country. And that was the basis of this uh, bipartisan bill that I didn't we get close to 70 votes, uh, Steve, that's a that's a record around here. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be an Easter miracle, I think, Angus, that we got numbers north of 70 in many ways. <laughs> well, you know, we have our, our big, we have a, a wonderful park. We have the uh, Acadia, of course, on the coast, and then Moosehorn National Wildlife Refuge, and we have a little bit of the White Mountain National Forest. We have a, a national monument, Katahdin Woods and Waters, but but you've got uh, the granddaddy of them all right there in, in, in Montana uh, at, at Yellowstone, where you mentioned you'd known it since you were a kid. Well, I've always said, Angus, the best decision I made is when I picked my great-great-grandma. Uh, she was a, a homesteader in northern Montana, from actually from Norway. And uh, so I, I always said I, I didn't get to pick Montana. It kind of picked me. I, I was just fortunate uh, to you know, be able to grow up there with family roots. And uh, you know, we have these, these beautiful parks. The Yellowstone Park, of course, is the oldest one right there, uh, just an hour south of where I went to kindergarten through college. And then we always think about Glacier National Park up there along the Canadian border, these uh, magnificent uh, mountain vistas. 
uh, grizzly bears and mountain goats and so forth. And uh, these are just treasures. Angus, I know, remember our, our good friend Lamar Alexander always said that something that set America apart was our, was our national parks. It's what Europe doesn't have such a concept. And we're very thankful for the vision of those who went before us that really painted this picture of, of our national parks and, and delivered on it. Well, I, I think you're right. Uh, to use the word vision is exactly the right term. It's, I've often thought of the people in New York that set aside Central Park, which of course is a city park, but you think about the real estate, how valuable that real estate is, but they were geniuses uh, over a hundred years ago to say, we need to preserve a piece of this island so people can take a deep breath. And, and uh, the national parks are, are, are really the same idea. Now, I presume, I mean, there was always talk about how this, uh, the, uh, the uh, Great America, uh, the uh, national parks funds were gonna be dispersed. I suggested it be done alphabetically starting with Acadia, but I guess <laughs> since you're from Montana and represent Yellowstone, maybe you don't think that's such a great idea. Yeah, well, you know, I think they always said the last shall be first, Angus, so maybe we'll start at the bottom and work our way back oh, up. So oh, oh, I see, okay. Figure out I, a bipartisan cooperation on that there, Angus, I think. I, I get that. Now, another bill that is actually you and I put in together and uh, it, believe it or not, it passed unanimously. Apparently, it's as of this weekend, is sitting on the president's desk called the Mapland Bill, which is a, a really nice piece of legislation that is that requires the the, the better mapping and 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 digitization of the of the of the public lands resource, so people can know where they are, where the entrances are, where the attractions are. Uh, you, you haven't heard anything from the White House, I presume. I, I haven't heard anything yet, Angus, but uh, it's it's just a another positive move in the right direction to uh, allow technology to be a tool and enabler for us to help improve the visitor experience. You know, so much of what's going on in the world is being digitized. It's moving, of course, to the powerful piece of technology we hold in our hands oftentimes. And we think about the next generation. How do we get our kids and our grandkids embracing our parks like we do, Angus. And I think that's one way where, uh, where we can do that by using technology. And, and then there's a, the, the second bill that's, that's pending, we're trying to get moving in the, next, in the next couple of weeks is the Gateway Community Bill you and I put in back in February. And one of the things we addressed there, and I wanna talk a little bit about this, is creating a technology where people can look on their, their smartphone and determine what the crowd, what the, what the uh, uh, attendance situation is at a park where they're thinking of going. So a, a kind of ways uh, for parks where you can know where the congestion is. Uh, and, and I think that's the direction we gotta go in. You and I had a hearing uh, a couple of months ago on overcrowding at the national parks, and it's a serious issue. Well, you think about it, Angus, when Americans and visitors from around the world are coming to a national park, they're trying to kind of get away from it all. They're trying to get away perhaps from the congestion and the, you know, the urban centers to enjoy a more of an outdoor experience. And you show up and you've got perhaps traffic jams to even get into the park through the, the ticketing process, the pass process. Uh, of course, there's certain parts of parks that are more popular than others. And, and you described it exactly right, you know, a ways for national parks to help disperse uh, crowds to even that out. And I think that will improve the experience of, uh, of the visitors that come to our national parks. Well, you're right, I'll, I'll never forget going to Yosemite and I was so excited to get to Yosemite and to see it and, 
and see, you know, El Capitan and, and the various sites there. And the first hour we were in a literal traffic jam. And then we spent time driving around trying to find a, a parking place. So that's the kind of thing that we've got to try to deal with. Part of it is uh, better traffic management. Part of it is things like shuttle buses at, at Acadia. We make great use of, of, uh, of shuttle buses so that people don't have to drive their cars uh, all over to get to the various uh, uh, parts of the of the park. And the other piece that you mentioned is uh, we've got some wonderful, fabulous hidden gems of national parks that people don't know about. And we've got to encourage people to to not that we don't love Acadia and Yellowstone, but we got to encourage people to 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 visit some of these other parks that that aren't so heavily uh, trafficked uh, in order to it, it, enjoy that wonderful outdoor experience. Yeah, it's really true, Angus. There's these, uh, as you call them, hidden gems that uh, it, it, it's delightful when somebody might be coming. Again, I'll use my Montana example. They're coming to see Yellowstone, but maybe on their way to Glacier Park, they stumble upon a couple of other national parks in between, and it's just a, a delightful surprise for a family that might be out having that experience. And so often the crowds will be a lot less in these parks that don't have the visibility like the big name ones do. Well, when, when we took our, our uh, nationwide RV trip, uh, we were in central Texas, we were in uh, San Antonio and we're headed for New Mexico. I looked and the weather wasn't very good in New Mexico. Uh, the only really warm place in the country was Southwest Texas. So we looked on the map and found Big Bend National Park. Turns out it's one of the least visited national parks in the country. And it was an absolute delight. We ended up staying there a, a, a week. There was a canyon you could raft, you could climb in the mountains. There were beautiful trails. I mean, and 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 so that's part of this uh, process of of dealing with the overcrowding at the parks is is just uh, letting people know what their what their uh, other options are. Uh, did Yellowstone have a, an increase of visitation this past year? We certainly yeah. did at Acadia. Yeah, we did, Angus. We're setting record numbers now, and I think that was, of course, one of the surprises as we were as we went into the COVID pandemic, and then we're starting to come out of it a bit. Uh, it seemed like the choice that so many Americans made was we're going to go to our national park. I think it was it was for for mental health. We saw needed to kind of clear our heads. We were just tired of being cooped up, and we just needed to get outside and see the bigger vistas. And so we just saw a huge migration. To our parks, I think that surprised. Uh, I know a lot of our park superintendents were not expecting such a response coming out coming out of COVID. Well, one of the things you've expressed a lot of interest in, and I know you know about, is the gateway communities. Talk to me about that and why that's something we need to pay more attention to. Yeah, well, Angus, in many ways, our national parks are only going to be as good as those gateway communities that surround our parks. They play such an important role. Uh, that's that's really the the, the first first impression somebody has oftentimes is that community that's right there on the edge of the park. So they're outside the park, as we call it a gateway community, but uh, they, a lot of the support that occurs, whether it's housing for park employees, whether it's like these rafting companies and others, they'll be just outside the park. And what's happening is because our parks are being uh, so deeply loved and visited by so many people, we're running out of space around a lot of these communities as well, just to make sure we get housing, basic housing, for example, for employees. So we, we've got to address that. It's becoming a constraint 
that again, I think that affect the experience, uh, if not corrected, of Americans when they visit their national parks. Well, and, and the important thing that you and I, we've had hearings on this and, and talked to leaders, is to be sure the communities and the park service are in communication, uh, that they be in close touch. Up at Acadia, they had a, a three-year process to develop a new transportation plan, and they involved the community and, and the, the, the visitation and, and people uh, with a, a variety of interests, and I think that's that that's really important. And the economic effect of these parks. I mean, I, I don't I don't know about yours, but Acadia, the estimate is that it's worth something like three hundred and fifty million dollars a year uh, to the region uh, of, of people that that are coming to visit. Uh, and so these parks are not only wonderful for for the people who get to experience and enjoy them, but they're they're also pretty darn important for the for their regional economies. Well, you're absolutely right, Angus. And one of the challenges we're seeing in our gateway communities is you, you kind of go back to when the vision of our parks was laid out, but it was definitely in, in, in some cases, we're talking over a hundred years ago. And some of these gateway communities are literally landlocked now. You know, they're, they're, they butt right up against our federal lands with their national parks. You know, so the question becomes, if you're surrounded by national forest, and, and so where, where do you go next? We need to, to create some more employee housing, think through more infrastructure, where is it? And so that's something we have to be thoughtful about to make sure these gateway communities aren't overly constrained from growing like we're seeing the visitations growing at our parks. Well, it's funny you should say that because I'm going to be putting a bill in, I think, in the next few days uh, for your uh, consideration and others on housing uh, land near Acadia. Uh, exactly what you're talking about. Uh, uh, having some some property that uh, makes makes uh, the work of uh, makes a, a room available for for housing for employees. Uh, final point I think is important, and and you and I both noticed this. The staffing of the parks hasn't kept up with the visitation. Uh, I remember seeing a graph about Yellowstone that we have pretty much the same number of park people there that we had 15 or 20 years ago, but the visitation is, has, has doubled. Uh, we don't want to burn out these wonderful park rangers, and we've got to be sure that they have that there's enough personnel uh, to be able to meet the, the public demand. Well, I'll tell you, Angus, one problem we're seeing, and I know this is across many of our parks, is that as we've come out of COVID and during COVID, the workforce has shifted. And because of remote work capabilities, people want to live and work in beautiful areas, which oftentimes are right by our national parks. And so what we've seen is, is we've, people have come in and bought real estate in these gateway communities. Well, the problem is the price has gone way up and then ask yourself, how does a park employee who's there showing up, how do they afford to live? The, the housing is a real problem. I know you're seeing that in Maine and we're seeing that in Montana as well. We've, we've got exactly the same problem and, and it's uh, every county in Maine but one grew last year by virtue of in-migration from other states. Uh, people that decided to come to Maine during the pandemic and we, we love to have them. It's, it's wonderful, but the effect on housing costs has really been uh, has been severe. Well, listen, I know you've got to go, Steve, but I, I really appreciate your time. And, and I do want to uh, make a deal with you. I have never been to Glacier. I don't think you've been to Acadia. So I think we need to uh, we need to have those reciprocal visits. I, I want to come out and see Glacier in the summer 
and I want to get you up to Acadia at, uh, at Mount Desert. Well, that, that's an easy deal to accept, Angus. So uh, <laughs> we'll do a handshake across, uh, across the audio waves here. Thank you, right. that, that great invitation. Steve, thank you very much for joining us today and, and thank you for the, for the work. It's, it's great fun to work, uh, work together with you and, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to uh, continuing to do so uh, as, the, as our, uh, I mean, there, there are always gonna be issues, but I think we're trying to find uh, the right place to, to, to make a difference. And uh, I really appreciate your, your uh, uh, willingness to do that and your leadership on these issues. Well, Angus, thank you. And I got to believe, I think you're the only chairman right now of a committee that is, in humility calls his ranking member his co-chair or his or her co-chair. So uh, that's that's called servant leadership, Angus. And it, <laughs> uh, it's, it's great working with you. And uh, no matter which way majorities go in the long haul, we're always going to be co-chairs. That's it. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much, Steve. Have, have a great uh, weekend. And uh, I appreciate your, your work and, and the work that we're able to do together. We're going to take a quick break on Inside Maine, and we'll be back in just a minute. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We're talking today about public outdoor recreation, about public lands, about parks, national parks. We just talked to my co-chair of the uh, National Park Subcommittee of the Committee on Energy and Natural Resources, and we were talking about national policy. Now I want to bring it back uh, closer to Maine and talk to Tom Gorrell, who's the president of the Maine Appalachian Trail Club. And uh, Tom, I, I hope you liked what you heard from us, uh, from Steve and I, uh, some of the work that we're doing down here. I want to talk about uh, Appalachian Trail in Maine, but uh, also uh, uh, things like the the mapping project, I think, is going to is going to make a difference, and that one is sitting on the president's desk. So hopefully, in the next week or so, we're gonna we're gonna have that uh, across the across the finish line, and and it'll be it'll be law that we're gonna have much better mapping and digital resources for these public lands across the country. Well, thanks for for having me uh, on your program today, Senator. And yes, I did. Um... Uh, enjoy listening to you and Senator Daines uh, talk about the mapping and the map land bill sounded uh, terrific. We certainly, um, you know, a lot of younger people that we're trying to attract uh, to, to the trail as volunteers are very oriented uh, towards the digital world and, and better mapping is key um, for them. And also the gateway community bill that you discussed with the Senator. Um, is, I think, an excellent opportunity to address some of the issues that we have on the AT, which, um, especially during the recent pandemic, we've seen parking lots being filled, as you said, and, and kind of spilling, in some cases, uh, out onto the adjacent street, not only the AT, but uh, land uh, trusts across the street. You know, trails have seen that happen. So this would be a great way for people to see you know, where the congestion is and maybe, you know, plan their day accordingly. So it's a, it's a great way to manage that traffic. Well, I, I also have to say that one of the pleasures of working on these issues uh, with a guy like Steve is it's entirely bipartisan. I didn't mention Steve's a Republican uh, from Montana. I'm, of course, an independent and in caucus with the Democrats, but uh, these issues are pretty much bipartisan, which uh, a lot of people feel that we can't do anything together down here, but uh, here's a case uh, where we can the great american outdoors act the the uh, 
the map bill I mentioned passed unanimously in the Senate. You, it's tough to get people around here to agree what time it is unanimously. So uh, I, I feel pretty good about that. Let's talk about the trail. You, you used the important word a few minutes ago, which is volunteer. Is the trail in Maine, the Appalachian Trail in Maine, pretty much fully maintained by, by volunteers? It is. Uh, we have kind of a, you know, we're not a top-down, we're a bottom-up organization. Um, and that's with the Appalachian Trail Conservancy as well. That's how, how uh, they operate uh, with the trail clubs. And we have um, uh, about 600 to 700 members, and we really are uh, volunteer driven. Uh, that's, uh, we have uh, broken down 267 miles of main footpath into two to four section, two to four mile sections, which are maintained by maintainers and they string out along the trail and that takes care of the 267 miles all get maintained. We have 60 miles of side trails. We've got 47 campsites and we monitor tens of thousands of acres of the national park um, lands which the trail is located. And actually an itching fact I think is that um, we have about 25 to 30,000 acres uh, that are conserved in uh, the Appalachian Trail. So, uh, you know, we're not too much smaller when you look at it than Acadia. We're just strung out a bit more. So, a, a long, a, by, a long skinny Acadia without the thunder hold. Maybe that's the way we can. It, exactly. Yeah. So our, our volunteers actually donate about 25,000 hours annually. So that's quite a quite an effort, and certainly strengthens the recreation and community involvement and stewardship along the uh, along Maine Woods. So, um, you know, we also have a trail crew, um, and that consists it's uh, uh, young people that uh, are paid, but they have a lot of volunteers as well from the club that, and they go out and they restore heavily damaged and eroding sections from. Uh, the increased volume of boot traffic and, you know, severe storms that we have these days because of climate change. So they install a lot of stonework, uh, which is lasting a lot longer than the uh, bog bridging and that sort of thing you used to see. So we also run a Ridge Runner program and uh, that that actually they're paid summer uh, volunteers, but they teach uh, hikers and youth groups, backcountry uh, camping and backpacking skills. And they also protect forest lands and some of the alpine summits. So, um, do you? We have let me ask a, a question about who's who's hiking. First, uh, how much of the trail is used by through hikers, people who want to do the whole trail from from Georgia to Mount Katahdin, and how much is used by local people? Just a a, a piece, a, a a short hike. Uh, can, can can you give me some sort of breakdown on that? Yeah, we have um, what we call through hikers, um, and we also have what's called section hikers, where they may, may be out for a number of days, and then we have day hikers. So the through hikers, they set out from Springer Mountain in Georgia, and they hike uh, to Katahdin, or they may actually do what we call Sobos, southbounders, and do the reverse. And sometimes they do flip-flops, and so they do part of it uh, north and then flip around to Katahdin and go south. So those are the categories. But generally, the through-hikers are a relatively small portion of the hikers. They're somewhere around 1% to 2% of the actual hikers. The majority of hikers are really out for 
for day hikes uh, and section hikes. Well, the uh, we've got we've got people uh, as you say, there are plenty of people that go out just uh, just for day hikes. And do they? Uh, what's the age? What get, talk to me about the age group? Are younger people hiking the same more? Who 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 describe your your hiking population? Well, we don't have a lot of survey data to back it up, but based certainly what we see on the trail, um, we have all age groups out on the trail. We have families out on the trail. Um, the volunteer force tends to be older in nature, but the hikers that I see are, again, all age groups. Um, it can depend on obviously the day of the week you're there, um, but um, I think most of the, um, it's a pretty uniform age group. It's not, uh, it's a good cross section. I should mention that my friend Tim Kane, who's the Senator from Virginia, over the last couple of years has hiked the whole trail in, in Virginia. Oh, wonderful. Uh, it's about, I think something like over 500 miles. It's a long section and he's, he's writing a book about it. Apparently it was quite an experience. It was mostly by himself. Uh, and he, you know, he spent the night in shelters and, and did it over a series of congressional recesses where he had some time. Uh, but uh, he, he, he raves about that experience. He's, he's quite an outdoorsman. Uh, I don't think I'm going to undertake the main section, uh, <laughs> <laughs> except, except in smaller uh, increments. Uh, well, one thing, we, we definitely do see people that are out for kind of um, to hit the reset button. It's really good for mental health, but they may have been going through some changes in their life and they just want to get out there. And so they'll do some section hikes and sometimes they'll do through hikes. So it's just a it's a really good way to hit that reset now, button. Now, what are the what are the camping facilities? What are you if you're if you're hiking the trail in Maine, are there places to are there lean-tos? Are there tent sites? What are the what what are the uh, what are the overnight resources? Well, we have 47 sites uh, throughout Maine, and um, they consist of a combination of uh, just ground uh, pads that you can set your tent on. Or some people today will do hammocks as well. Um, and we have lean-tos and we have tent platforms. So kind of runs the gamut, um, but uh, they're spaced about uh, 10 miles apart typically. So I think the average hiker, you know, they can plan on uh, stopping every 10 miles if that's what they wish to do. The longer hikers will run, you know, skip a, skip a campsite. So a lot of work goes into those campsites. And I know you and Senator Dana talked about uh, uh, the maintenance needs on some of those, and, and uh, we're in the process here in Maine of replacing all the pit toilets that we have in those 47 campsites, and that's a huge effort. We're putting in um, what's called moldering privies, and uh, they involve uh, carrying up a lot of lumber and uh, building them. It's, uh, we've gotten it down to a science now. The campsite committee has it down to a couple of days. Uh, we pre-build them first and take them apart and carry them in. But uh, we're hoping in the next uh, 10 years or whatever to finish uh, that effort. But that's a huge effort, and it certainly takes a, a fair amount of money. What's your relationship to the National Park Service? Are there Appalachian Trail Rangers, uh, or are you entirely managed by volunteers? What's, how, does, how does that work? 
Well, there's the Appalachian Trail Conservancy is actually responsible to the uh, National Park Service for managing uh, the various uh, maintainers of the trail. There's, uh, I believe, I forget the number, it's uh, 30 some odd uh, clubs, maintaining clubs that are along the Appalachian Trail. So um, it is, uh, we don't really have any rangers. It's uh, people like the Ridge Runner program that I mentioned earlier. The, those folks are trained, they go through some training to help educate the public when they uh, run into them uh, on uh, things like leave no trace and how to have minimal impacts on the facility. I think there's one uh, acting ranger for the entire trail actually, uh, you know, from Virginia to Maine. So it's, it's really managed by the Appalachian Trail Conservancy and, and our volunteers. Are you seeing an uptick in the number of users? We've we, we certainly seen that nationally, there were 60 million more visitors to national parks last year than the year before. Of course, that was COVID and hopefully post-COVID. Uh, Acadia for the first time had 4 million visitors. That's the first time they've hit that number. I can remember not that long ago, it was something like 2.7. So uh, what, what, are you, what are you seeing in terms of numbers? Well, we're seeing um, in the last 10 years or so, I think I understand that it's, it's come close to doubling. We don't really um, have good solid data on visitation. That's something I know you're interested in. Uh, we would like to see, uh, be able to count more, but certainly there have been an increased use of, uh, of the Appalachian Trail significantly uh, increased. Where I was out last summer, um, and saw, I think, uh, up at the Gulf, uh, that the large parking lot there was spilling over and we had as many cars in the road as we did, you know, in the parking lot. And that's never happened before. So that's kind of indicative of the increase we've seen. Of course, some of that was COVID, but it's continued to grow. You mentioned the Gulf, and I heard that your sort of interest in this started a bit at, at the Gulf. We're talking about Gulf Haggis. A lot of people in Maine don't know about Gulf Haggis. It's a fantastic place. Mary and I were up there a couple of years ago. Tell us about Gulf Haggis and, and, and where it is. Well, Gulf Haggis is up near Brownville, and I think a lot of people might have heard of Katahdin Ironworks as well. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful preserve. Years ago, they uh, you know, got iron ore out of those the hills there, and today it's really a, a notch. Uh, that goes through that uh, is a very pretty uh, and scenic area. Uh, the Appalachian Trail goes through it. And so as a kid, I, I, uh, that was one of my first experiences uh, in camping. I was up there with my dad actually, and uh, we camped near Silver Lake and, and uh, had a wonderful experience up there. And I hope younger people can continue to have those types of experiences. There, there's, some, there's some great campsites along the river just south of Gulf Haggis that I've got my eye on that uh, Mary and I want to want to try to get up to uh, in the in the RV if, if we can. Um, and and the other the other piece is it's it's a it's a canyon. It's a it's a, a deep uh, gorge that uh, is is very impressive and and just was just a, a spectacular place uh, a little bit east of, of uh, Greenville. We came over from Greenville the day we were there and then went down through Katahdin Ironworks and came came out by Brownville. Talk to me more generally, Tom, about outdoor recreation in Maine and, and why it's so important. 
Well, outdoor recreation is uh, important for several reasons. It's it's really an um, economic engine for the rural areas in Maine. Um, and in outdoor, it's kind of the basis of con uh, conservation. And it's also, as I said, rural economic de uh, development. Um, Maine's one of the most popular section of the AT and outdoor recreation's you know, way of life for the Mainers. Um, it's, you know, recreation experience on public and private lands draws a lot of people from all over the world. So since the beginning of the pandemic, we've had a significant increase in, in visitors. Uh, you mentioned that increase, you know, it's almost doubled. Um, and that includes tourists and youth groups and scientists and all kinds of uh, long, well, we have long distance hikers, as we mentioned. Um, you know, it's important, I think, to point out that the whole AT, including Maine, is free to the public and it provides access to the wilderness across all socioeconomic uh, levels as well. You know, if you can get there, you can hike it in Maine. And so we also want to serve underrepresented constituents, such as youth groups and, youth groups and veterans and families on tight budgets. So, um, you know, it, it, it interweaves with uh, economic development. Uh, I know it added about 4.2% to the Maine's total GDP in 2019. So that translates to a lot of jobs and it, you know, it doesn't really reflect all the impact in our gateway communities, uh, you know, that we have on our gateway communities, which I heard you in the center talking about as well. In Maine, those gateway communities are Millinocket, Monson and uh, Rangeley. Um, so, and, and the state comprehensive plan uh, reflects that tourism generated about $6.2 billion in direct expenditures over, uh, you know, and, and a lot of jobs across the strait. So it's uh, tourism is a strategic option for Maine and, and for economically challenged areas and diversifying the economy. One of the most famous sections of the Appalachian Trail of the whole trail happens to be in Maine, the 100 mile wilderness. Yes. Describe what is the 100 mile wilderness? Where does it start? Where does it end? And is it really still wilderness? Well, it's not really um, wilderness anymore. It, it does um, go south from Katahdin down to, um, down to Monson. Yeah, I think of it starting in Monson. Is that? Is that yeah, I mean, it, exactly. Monson to, to up to Katahdin, really. And, it's a beautiful um, hike through there. Um, it's not, as I said, really uh, a wilderness so much anymore, but it has a lot of uh, cachet, I guess. That's the, its reputation. Um, it's crossed by a lot of rocking roads and a lot of people, it's just the allure of it that um, want to go from, you know, from Monson to hike up Katahdin. So um, it's, it's uh, about a 10-day hike, um, so it's, it's a great experience. And it's, but it's not an easy hike. It's not a walk in the backyard. Well, it's not. It's, um, if you've, it depends on your perspective. If you've yeah. done the whole AT up to that point, that's not a bad hike. It's, it seems flatter than the southern part of the state, at least was, was my experience. But the, uh, it is a rugged uh, hike overall. It goes up over Whitecap and and which is a pretty rugged mountain and uh, other areas. So yeah, you need to be very well prepared to undertake the 100 mile wilderness. Well, Tom, I want to put you on the spot. What's your favorite section of the AT in Maine? 
<laughs> well, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I figured. You're now being, yeah. now you know what it feels like to be a politician. You want to avoid questions like that. Exactly. Well, for <laughs> me, I think it's, it's Saddleback. Um, you know, the view, um, it's great. And the hike is wonderful. Um, and, you know, the wilderness experience, it's, it's really a pristine area that's indicative of the iconic places that we want to preserve in Maine and, and throughout the AT corridor. So that, that, that'd be my answer, but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty close to, to a lot of others. Well, you've already really sort of answered this question of, of why do we do this? Because it's, it's who we are. I mean, it, it's, it, it, and I've always contended that in the, in the long term, Maine has a bright future because of the attractiveness of the state and, and the natural resources that we have and the amenities like the, like the trail, like the Appalachian Trail. And in fact, it proved itself last year. This is, I just ran across these figures. Every county in Maine last year lost population by, from what they call natural increase, which means there were more deaths than births. On the other hand, every county in Maine but one, and the one was Aroostook, every other county in Maine gained population because of people moving in, mostly from other parts of the country. Why did they move here? I would argue it's because of the quality of life. Uh, they came from the cities. They came from the Midwest. They came from cities along the East Coast. And that's why I've always argued that maintaining the outdoor recreation experience, things like the Appalachian Trail, Land for Maine's Future Program, uh, the wonderful state parks that we have, um, it's, it's, it's not only part of who we are, but it's, it's part of maintaining the, 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 uh, the, the economy of the state. It is. That's correct. And it, we, we do see a lot of people coming to Maine, um, especially with the pandemic. And so we're going to need to balance, you know, the development that needs to occur in Maine and still provide for, you know, our open space and maintain the resources that we have here. And that includes the, the AT. Um, so, you know, we need to explore ways to uh, continue to fund the improvements we need to maintain that wilderness um, and connect it with other recreational opportunities that we have here in Maine. So, you know, being at snowmobiling or uh, fishing and, and, you know, all the things like that and uh, uh, preserve uh, all those resources. So the recreational opportunities are the demand for those are going to increase as, as people come to our state. And, and they're coming to our state because of its reputation. Uh, for, you know, wilderness and beauty and, and those things. So we, we need to be careful that we maintain those uh, those facilities. Absolutely. Well, listen, Tom Gorrell, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, but particularly thank you for the for the work that you do on, on behalf of the Appalachian Trail, the work with the volunteers and, and maintaining those experiences that are so important to, to who who Maine is, who we are as a state and, and uh, what we offer our, our citizens. Tom, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us and uh, hopefully I'll see you along the trail somewhere. Well, we certainly would like to have you come out and join us again, Senator. And, and also, um, you know, a shout out to any folks that really want to volunteer and become a part of our Appalachian Trail community. They can go to um, our website at the uh, matc.org and, and join up there or go to the Appalachian Conservancy's website and, uh, and join that as well. So 
uh, we are in desperate need, not desperate, I guess, but we're in a need, high need for um, more volunteers, certainly to help maintain uh, the experience that, you know, as the Appalachian Trail well into the future. Fantastic. Tom, thanks again. Thanks for the work that you do. And uh, thanks for joining us on Inside Maine. And thanks, thanks to our listeners. Good to have you with us. And uh, we'll see you next time. We'll be talking about different issues involving Maine and the country. Uh, I'm Angus King. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day. <laughs>